Good morning. I appreciate all the things that have been said so far this morning um, from, uh, from Matt at the uh, communion table, from, from uh, Joe and from, from Clint. Um, today is a solemn day in America. It's, um, you know, it goes without saying, many of us, um, most of us, for the high major- vast majority of us here today, were alive uh, 15 years ago. Uh, when America was attacked by terrorists. And as Matt mentioned today, around the country, many are spending this day reflecting on where they were, the feelings that they had, the shock that filled the world as terrorists attacked our country in ways that the world has never seen at the time and has yet to see since then. I remember where I was. I'm sure many of you remember as well. But as we reflect on that day in our past, we must be mindful of the reason that we gather here today. And as Matt brought up, we are here this morning to reflect on the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is in this that we find strength, we find comfort, but most of all, we find hope. We have hope of an eternal life uh, in heaven with Him, free from, free from sin, free from this world of darkness. Now, when I reflect back on that day in 2001, watching the second plane hit the South Tower from my American government classroom, I remember I had just walked in after gym class. It was just after nine. And uh, the teacher had the TV on, was watching CNN, and the North Tower was on fire. And I remember watching the second plane fly into it and another explosion. I remember the uncertainty that I had, the fear that I had, and the questioning that I had about where is God in all of this. Because growing up, I always believed America was a Christian nation. God's protecting this nation because we're a Christian nation. How ignorant that thought is. But I do remember that America prayed that day. If I'm not mistaken, mistaken, many of our leaders of this country prayed that day, some on national TV. The next day was a Wednesday, and many churches were filled, many to capacity, and Sunday's the same thing. Our nation was again united, for the most part, under God. It wasn't God that we were looking for in the attack, but it's in the aftermath that many found Him. But in the aftermath, many children and teens, myself included, had many faith-related questions, including, where is God in all of this? This was likely the first time that many of them in their young lives had experienced a tragedy such as this. And for that matter, it was probably the first time their parents had as well. This was a time for faithful parents to be prepared to lead and guide their children along the narrow path that we're expected to be walking But unfortunately, many parents had the same feelings that the kids had. Uncertainty, doubt, fear, anxiety, anger, etc., etc. But it's times like the September 11th terror attacks in which Christ's command and teaching that we're going to look over today helps, helps us to understand the important roles that we have in children's lives. Both young children that are growing in their faith, those who are young Christians who are Uh, you know, just becoming a disciple of Christ, young and old, 
Because the teaching of Jesus here in Matthew chapter 18 that we're going to go over today, and same thing with the song that we just sang, it's not just about kids. It's about children of God. So this teaching that we're going to go over today shows us how we must remain faithful examples, not putting stumbling blocks in the way of those who are wanting to become Christians, those who are Christians, and those who are growing as Christians. But we, are, uh, but we learn to strive with all our being to show them the love and the hope that we have in Christ, to be the light in a dark world, for them to be able to see the true and righteous way. Because we do live in a dark world. And it's important for us to shine the light so that the path may be seen. Turn over, if you will, to Matthew chapter 18, where we'll spend the bulk of our time this morning as we turn our attention to this command of Christ to not despise children. Now, in this teaching, we see one of the more touching and endearing scenes of Christ's personal ministry on this earth. One in which Jesus teaches of the necessity of conversion, the need for humility, the dangers of sinful stumbling blocks, and the future punishment for said sin. But in all of this, we learn just how precious we are to God. Now, our scripture reading earlier was from the last section of what we're going to cover this morning. And thank you, Joe, for going back and reading the first two. I wanted to put verses 1 through 14 up there, but I figured that was too long. So I just did uh, 10 through 14. But thank you for going back and and reading that. Um, But really, to to get a full grasp of these verses, you actually have to go back a full chapter um, and read exactly what the disciples were doing before Matthew chapter 18 begins. But... uh, Let's go ahead. Let me go. Yeah, let's go flip over. So the first thing that Jesus teaches is found in verses one through four. And we're going to kind of break this up into different sections this morning. Now, the immediate context is important as this begins at that time. Okay, if you just pick up your Bible and start reading in Matthew chapter 18, verse one, it says at that time, you have no idea what time it is. Is it noontime? Is it lunchtime? That's not really what he's talking about. Instead, he's talking about where they were and what they, what they were doing, what had been happening. So you have to go back a few verses and get the immediate context. So the disciples, <coughs> along with Jesus, uh, they were headed to Capernaum. Uh, they were in Capernaum, and Peter had been uh, challenged about paying the temple tax. And that's when Jesus sent him fishing for some money. Uh, don't we all wish that it was that easy to get money um, to pay our taxes? Unfortunately, It is not. But it was for Peter that day. And just prior to that, Jesus had explained to them that he was going to have to die. That in order for his kingdom to be established on this earth, that he had to die. Now take all of that and and encompass it into what we've been talking about uh, in our Sunday morning Bible class. It's been several weeks. But um, at this time in Jewish culture, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a warrior king to come in and free them from Rome. They were looking for someone uh, that was going to fight for them and lead an earthly kingdom, not a spiritual or a heavenly kingdom. Now, this was the belief of all the Jews, and that included the disciples, because they were all still Jews. Jesus was also a Jew. Of course, Jesus wasn't believing that because he was the one establishing the kingdom. But all of those around him believed that that's what Jesus was setting up. They had not yet understood what Jesus was saying that he was going to set up. 
And so as they're on their way to Capernaum, the disciples had been arguing. And if you look back at at Mark's uh, gospel account in chapter 9, you see this conversation, you see this activity that happens with the disciples. And Jesus, uh, Jesus, with Jesus detailing to them that he was going to have to die for this kingdom to be established, they were reasoning with themselves, they were reasoning in their brains that someone would have to take over the rule of the kingdom if Jesus was leaving. So who's going to do it? Who is the greatest among us? Who is going to be held in the highest standing within the kingdom when Jesus dies? Basically, who's going to have the, the, the big powerful positions? Who's going to be the king? Who's going to be the treasurer? Etc. And they ask him uh, here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus answers, And he brings a child forth, and he puts him in the midst of them, and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first thing that Jesus teaches here in chapter 18 is the need for conversion. Okay, That's found in verse 3. It says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The word turn that's used there is probably translated in some of your other versions as convert. Okay? But the, the Greek word is strafo, okay? which means to turn away from, to turn your back on, to uh, just turn around, basically, is what that term is, is meant to um, mean. And in this instance, Jesus is instructing his disciples to turn their back on their selfish pride, on their arrogance, to believing what they were arguing about, basically. The King James and other translations read, unless you are converted and become like children, which is an accurate representation of what Jesus is saying here. To change your attitude from one thing into something completely different. That's what converting is. That's what it means to turn away, to turn your back on something. You turn and do something else. When you convert money, Okay, you convert money from one monetary system to another. In some cases, you get a lot more money out of it that way. I remember when I went to Scotland several years back, it was almost a two-to-one conversion rate. Two American dollars for one British pound. I felt like I was being cheated. Because things still cost the same. When you see a kilt that's $50, you think, oh, that's really $100. I don't have that kind of money. I'm going to buy it anyways. <laughs> But in this case here, Jesus wants his disciples to convert their pride into humility, the humbleness of a child. And hopefully it would be on a better conversion rate than that of the American dollar. But these words of Jesus indicate that this conversion is something that one has to do on their own. This is a decision that they have to actively make. And the responsibility is theirs and theirs alone. Look at at, uh, verse, verse 3 again. He says, unless you turn... Meaning that there's an opposite of that. If you don't turn, okay, you can read this in the opposite. If you don't turn and don't become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's the same principle, okay? So there's a choice that has to be made. These are a call to action, if you will. And the same applies to us today. We have a choice whether we turn to humility and obedience to the word of God. And that choice should be fueled by our trust in God to provide the means and the situations to aid us in our change. Now, I don't know about you, but when I pray for patience, I'm often met with situations that force me to have patience. And the same thing goes for this. When we seek 
humble obedience, it's likely that we'll be met with situations that require us to be humble, to be obedient to, the, to God's word, or instead we can be prideful, we can be arrogant, but true conversion happens. The true turning that Jesus details comes when you're able to recognize those two choices, recognize that there are two situations that you can go to, and then you make the right choice, the choice that Jesus encourages you to turn to. And that, again, is humility and obedience. And without conversion, we cannot have our sins blotted out. Without this change, our sins cannot be removed. Peter preached this in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and used the same word for turn when he said, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Repent and turn back. Meaning those two things have to go together. Just like when the Bible says, repent and be baptized, those things have to go together. And this indicates that a repentance of sin was needed along with a turning back of their prideful, arrogant ideals based in traditions of man and not the Word of God. And finally, Jesus' use of a child to illustrate this point is used to show the importance of the father-child relationship that we have with God. This is a relationship that we are expected to respect, just like we expect our children to respect us. The child of God who humbles themselves like a child to think that the father knows best, and they know this because God told them so, they will be crowned with the greatest honors in the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus points out in verse 4 there. Those who think they are wise enough to improve on the father's way is considered a fool and will never find a home in heaven because they allowed their selfish pride, they allowed their arrogance to overshadow the truth. That is, unless they turn and become like children. It is vital for a true child of God to trust and follow the Lord's way just as He gave it to us. Only in this do we show our humility and obedience to what we have been given just like that of a child. And it's important to strive for that humble and obedient spirit in how we walk and how we work in the kingdom of God. Paul used this example that Jesus gives and expounds upon it in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3-8. through 8. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, he writes, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, through, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Notice Paul uses humble and obedient when referring to Jesus Himself. Christ is teaching us in Matthew chapter 18 not, not, uh, to not only have the humility and obedience of a child, but have the humility and obedience of God's only begotten child. As Paul shows us here, that Jesus Himself humbled Himself and was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. And the reason why He says 
uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross, because death on a cross was the lowest death. That was reserved for the biggest criminals in Rome. Paul also exhorts the church in Colossus to show uh, the same humility and obedience in Colossians 3, 12 through 13. He says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul is detailing the characteristics of a child. When you look at these characteristics, holy and beloved, compassionate heart, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. Well, in most cases with children, they bear with one another. But you see all of these characteristics are seen in children. But all of these characteristics are also shown in the only begotten child of God as well. And these uh, characteristics are what is expected of us as God's children. Now, the last point that Paul makes... uh, In verse 13, he says, If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ties directly into our sermon this evening, uh, which is at 6 o'clock, and we'll discuss Jesus' command to go to those who offend you in Matthew chapter 18, just a few verses after what we're covering this morning. But the next thing that we learn from his teaching here uh, that we're going over in Matthew 18, 1 through 14, is found in verses 5 through 7. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to, uh, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So Jesus transitions from a child by nature, that is a child by age, who he was using as an example. He now transitions from using that reference to a, a, uh, a different childlike reference, if you will. The phrase used in the Greek for one such child there in verse 5, whoever receives one such child, um, means one such as, one such as this child. So uh, verse 5 means whoever receives the disposition of a child like I just described, one humble and obedient receives me. Because he just detailed what the child is, the humble spirit, and one who receives that humble spirit, who turns and becomes like a child, Whoever receives that person receives me. And so we see that he is referring to his disciples. Okay? Those who accept this teaching and apply it. And we know that he's he's speaking of his disciples for a couple of reasons. First, in verse 6, he says, One of these children, or little ones, who believe in me. Now, children's understanding and belief in Jesus is taught to them from a very early age, for the most part. At least children who are brought up in the church. But it is not to a point yet in which the child can make the choice that we spoke of earlier, a choice to turn and become like a child. They are a child. To become humble and obedient to the Word of God. A child is unable to comprehend and grasp the importance of salvation, grace, sacrifice, and the cost of being a disciple. Now, the word child in the Greek can refer to a child from baby to age 12. So there comes a time... Uh, in which a child can come to this understanding. There's a time where a child can become a disciple of Christ once they come to this understanding and obey the gospel and become a disciple of Christ, just as those who Jesus is uh, addressing here. Now, throughout the Bible, young Christians or new converts are often referred to as children or babies in the faith, if you will. 
And Jesus' teaching applies just as much to them as it does to those who are older, uh, older disciples who hold this humble and obedient spirit. Now, the second reason we know that Jesus is talking about his disciples in verse 6 is because he uses the exact same phrase to refer to his disciples back in Matthew chapter 10. Look at what he says here in verses 40 through 42. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me, that is God. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. Here it is. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is basically saying that whoever receives the disciples and believe, they too receive Christ. Even the smallest service, such as serving a cup of cold water, because they are disciples, it is seen and rewarded by God. And notice how Jesus uses the same phrase, little ones, to refer to his disciples. He says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, okay, little ones and disciple, is who he's talking about there. It is a term of endearment that he uses. He's referred to them as his children, And it reflects the same endearment that he uses in chapter 18 as well. And then Jesus, in verse 6, continues to detail the dangers of causing a child who is able to believe in him to sin. Some translations use the word stumble instead of sin in verse 6. It would say, those who believe in me to stumble. Uh, The Greek word means to sin or to fall away, to fall away from God. And Jesus details the terribleness of causing these children to sin. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble or to sin or to fall away, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. He says the punishment... The punishment for causing a child of God to stumble and to sin or to fall away from God is worse than dying by drowning. Now, I don't know about you all, but I hate water. I don't like swimming in pools. I'm afraid of water. I'm afraid of drowning, probably from some childhood tragedy or something that happened in my childhood that makes me afraid of it. But there's nothing worse than feeling unable to breathe. I remember being on the bus as a kid and getting punched in the solar plex by a little girl that was sitting next to me uh, and getting the wind knocked out of me. And it was the first time it had ever happened, and it scared me. I thought I was dying. I never want to drown to death. But Jesus says that the punishment is worse than that. And that, to me, is probably one of the worst ways I can imagine to die. Now, because, because... uh, this, because of this sin that you're causing a child of God to, to have or, or to stumble, uh, it's a terrible thing. Jesus says it's a terrible thing. And because it's terrible because it is in and of itself a sin uh, against Christ himself. Now consider the opposite of verse 5. Whoever does not receive one such child in my name does not receive me. He, if you receive a child of God... 
you receive Christ. You, you, are, you are in Christ's presence, if you will. You, you are seeing Christ in, in them. Jesus taught this exact lesson to Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. Paul had been persecuting the disciples, causing many to fall away from the faith, relinquish their faith for fear of death. And Jesus was none too happy about that. Jesus asks him on the road to Damascus, he says, Why are you persecuting me? He didn't ask Paul, or Saul at the time, why he was persecuting his followers. He said, Why are you persecuting me? Because when you persecute a disciple of Christ, you are persecuting Christ himself. Paul passed this knowledge on to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 when teaching them not to be stumbling blocks to others around them. Jesus speaks of this stumbling here as well, again in verse 6. Jesus and Paul both taught to avoid being stumbling blocks to the children of God, whether those who are growing in faith, learning what it means to become a disciple uh, before they even become one, Those who are, are young children, who are, are learning about God, but also those who are either young in their faith or weak in their faith or even strong in their faith. How, how can we avoid being stumbling blocks for those around us? First of all, there's a couple. Avoid keeping them from freely serving Christ. I've been in congregations where they have told men, we don't want you to serve. We don't want you to lead singing. You're not the best song leader ever. Uh, we, you know, we have other men who can serve. What kind of message does that send to that man who's wanting to serve in that capacity? Another one, don't withhold opportunities to serve because they're not old enough, they're not wise enough. Let me tell you, I wouldn't be here today if it, wouldn't, if it wasn't for Adam Zabo and Lamarck A. Ward at Kumo encouraging me and pushing me to teach at Kumo. Instead of saying, nah, you don't have a degree, you, do, you don't have the biblical knowledge and foresight that all of these other you know, college, university graduates have. But they encourage me to go forth. Another one, don't directly cause them to fall away as Paul or Saul did by persecuting, by ridiculing, by opposing them, by dissuading them from serving. And then indirectly for that matter, by living a life inconsistent with what you claim to be. That's an important one, especially around children. Are we putting those stumbling blocks before our children, around fellow Christians, or even those looking at us as Christian examples, those who we work with, our friends, our family members? Earlier this week, my friend Wes put out an article titled, Reasons Why I Choose Not to Drink. Now, the article got mixed reactions, and I saw some Christians trying to justify why they drink. I don't do it to get drunk. I just have a glass of wine here and there. But the purpose of Brother West's article was not to condemn those who choose to drink, but rather share some valid reasons as to why he chooses not to drink. And one of those reasons, one of those reasons that he intended, again, to, to challenge other Christians to look critically at their actions one of those reasons was the example that he's setting for his children and fellow Christians alike and those who looked to him as a Christian example. Now, the other day I heard of a young child buying their father a cup that, that always looks like it's full of beer. It's one of those tumblers that has the liquid inside and it said, best dad ever on it. What examples are we setting for our children? Now, I'm not, 
I'm not condemning that parent or, or anything like that, but when, I, when my kids go to pick out something for me, I want them to see something fun. I want them to see something biblical and think, that's my dad. Not something that could cause them in the future to stumble as well. This is something that we need to always consider with our, with our actions because we are lights in this world. And what are we doing to our lights when we, when we block it out or when we do things that others think that we shouldn't do or maybe things that we know that we shouldn't do? And to that extent, what are we doing at home to lead our children to Christ? Are we removing the stumbling blocks that they see Are we removing the examples that they've picked up on that lead them to think that the most important decision in their life is something that they can wait on? Are we getting rid of the examples of skipping out on church because we have other things that are more important to do? Because I'm going to tell you right now, when they go out into the world, that same philosophy is going to stick with them. As parents, it is one of the biggest responsibilities that we have bringing our children to Christ, studying the Bible with them, being examples of Christian living. Why is this so important? Because because of that hope of eternal life that we talked about earlier. And the hope of eternal life that I hope I talk about every week. Because without it, without that hope, the reality of future punishment, eternal punishment looms for those who do not obey which is what Jesus addresses next in verses 8 through 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. The word hell there is important. The word hell in the Greek is Gehenna. And it's used 12 times in Scripture. 11 of those was by Jesus. There are some who don't believe in punishment after death. There are some who believe that hell doesn't exist, that we're all going to heaven, that we're all, on, we're all going to the same place, we're just taking different roads to get there. That's not true. That is false doctrine 100%. Elsewhere, Jesus mentions everlasting punishments in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. I don't know about you guys, but that sounds terrible. I didn't like being punished as a child, and I definitely would not like being punished for the rest of eternity in a fiery lake, as, as uh, John the Revelator put, point, put it. Now consider the implication of these verses here when uh, put together to complement one another. Uh, Matthew 18, verse 6, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 28 through 29, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Folks, that's what happens when you cause a disciple of Christ to stumble and to sin. When you cause a child to stumble and sin. When you cause someone who who wants to become a disciple of Christ to stumble, to fall away, and change their mind. Now, do you think that watering this down or teaching something contrary to this is wise? 
Do you think it's wise to not encourage our children, our grandchildren, or those that are sitting around us who have not obeyed the gospel to heed these words? Do you think that it is wise for us to not acknowledge this teaching in the destiny of those who do not turn and become like a child, humble in spirit and obedient to the commands of God and of Christ? Now, I hope that you agree with me and think that no, we should not be doing those things. We should not be watering down this teaching of Christ. We should absolutely be encouraging our children, our grandchildren, and those sitting around us to obey the gospel, to heed these words. We should absolutely be teaching the punishment that waits for those who don't obey. Finally, we've, we've reached our command for the day. <laughs> and in the final five verses of our section this morning, we are taught about the preciousness of God's children. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man came to save the lost. Who, uh, uh, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them uh, has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let me read that again. It is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. The first verse here indicates that these little ones, which remember are the disciples of Christ, uh, who, those who believe in him, Jesus commands, do not despise one of them. The word despise in Greek indicates to think little of them, to, uh, to, neglect, uh, to neglect, the, neglect the means necessary to live the Christian life, to deny them opportunities, like I talked about earlier. H. Leo Bowles wrote in his commentary of the book of Matthew, he says, We are to use all means at our command to help each other. To despise one is to put temptation in their way. Men often despise the poor or the humble Christian. They do them wrong, almost force them by oppression into doing evil. The reason Jesus then gives as a warning to those who would despise his disciples is that that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now this is admittedly a difficult passage for there is not much for us to understand fully what Jesus is, is detailing in regards to these angels. Now many speculate different things so as to avoid being dogmatic about uh, what Jesus is talking about, whether he's talking about guardian angels or the, the spirits of the disciples uh, after they die. Let us focus rather on the meaning of what Jesus is saying here. This is the important part of it. The important part of this statement is that these little ones, those who have humbled themselves in obedience like a child, which Jesus described, have a high standing with God. God holds them in such high regard, so much so, Jesus says, that they, or those who are representing them in heaven, stand in God's presence. So whether it be guardian angels, or whether it be uh, our spirits when we go up to heaven, these children, these disciples of Christ, are standing in the presence of God. That is a high standing to, to have. Now, verse 11, 
which there's a little asterisk down there. It's not included in the ancient manuscripts. Okay, I, I feel like it's necessary to point that out because many of your Bibles may not have it in the Scripture. They may have it in a footnote. Many believe that uh, this is a quote from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which it is. It is a direct quote from there, if it is a quote or if it's inspired. Either way, it is an inspired word uh, found in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but its importance here is to show that Jesus came to die for everyone. The children who are growing in faith, the old who are doing the same, those who are young in their discipleship, or those struggling with their faith. Jesus came to die for all. Jesus shows his concern for those who are lost in the following verses in the the parable of the lost sheep, as many Bibles probably headline this as. And he does this to reflect on his command to not despise the little ones. If Jesus was willing to give his life for them, for the lost sheep, how dare we despise or neglect them? Verse 14 again. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. God does not want one person to be lost. This verse alone refutes the false Calvinistic doctrine of predestination or election. That false doctrine teaches that a person or a soul is pre-elected for heaven or hell no matter what they do on earth, no matter the choices that they make. I still, I can't, can't fathom where they get that from, but either way, this verse alone is a direct contradiction to that teaching. Jesus says that it is not God's will that one would perish. God desires for all those who are lost to be saved. There is countless examples in Scripture that call sinners to repent and be saved through baptism. If that avenue of salvation is open to all, then how is one chosen to go to heaven or hell by God? God's will is for all who are lost to turn away from selfish pride and disobedience and become like a child, humble and obedient. Believing in predestination is to basically say the sacrifice of Jesus was never needed, which goes against everything that's contained within the true gospel message. Now, Jesus was willing to give his life for those who are lost. It is not God's will for, those, uh, for one of those who believe to be lost and perish. Instead, he desires for all to come to faith, to believe, repent, and be baptized for the remission of their sins. We are not to despise anyone willing to humble themselves and obey the gospel. We are not to put any stumbling blocks in their way of someone who is willing to humble themselves and obey the gospel. And if you do that, if you put a stumbling block in front of somebody who is willing to humble themselves, to turn and become like a child and obey the gospel of Christ, then Jesus says your punishment will not be something that you want to look forward to. Now, if you've wanted to humble yourself and obey the gospel in the past and somebody put a stumbling block in your way, today is a great day for you to jump over that stumbling block and make the decision that Jesus desires of you. If you wish to make that choice for yourself, to confess your faith, to repent, uh, and be baptized for the remission of your sins, or if you've been baptized and you have stumbled, you have fallen away, back into sin, away from God, then repentance is available and achievable. Forgiveness is yours to have if you are willing to turn 
and humble yourself and become like a child, humble and obedient to the will of God. It is God's will for you not to perish. So the invitation is yours. And if you so desire, you can come up front now while we stand and sing.